Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. Here, you'll listen to deep dive conversations and scenes from audiobooks. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite storyteller. This is episode 32. Author Tracy Clark is four books into a classic P.I. series. Her ex-homicide detective turned private investigator is Cass Rains. She's a character you didn't know you needed. And she's not alone. Tracy Clark delivers a whole cast of memorable characters. I find your cast of characters so just delightful. I just really enjoyed the whole Scooby-Doo pack that she, you know, surrounds herself with for crime and problem solving. Um, my favorite, his name is Pouch. Uh, um, Pouch and is you, my favorite too. <laughs> oh my gosh. I did, I did not plan Pouch. Uh, he was not in any of my ideas uh, when I sort of started writing these books he just sort of popped up he came in with whip um just one of and I can't remember even what book it was it might have been the first or the second I don't know uh whip came to her door he had this little guy dressed all in one color uh, along with him yeah and so there he came he's just there and he will probably be there until the day I die (laughs) (laughs) well he is people should know that he is he's more than just a sidekick. Uh, he has a, he has an integral role to play and his, his particular, like you just mentioned, all in one color, he dresses mm-hmm. in a specific way. You also reference his hands. You, mm-hmm. um, there's something in the descriptor about his hands that caught me and I can almost feel his need, his compulsion. Mm-hmm. So do you want to explain to people what his um, main character trait is? Well, he's a thief. I mean, <laughs> more yes. specifically, he's a pickpocket. Uh, he has, uh, you mentioned his hands. He has the hands of a surgeon. Um, they're thin, they're tapered, uh, perfectly formed, and perfectly able to sort of slip into your pocket and take your wallet out. Um, so that's yes. what he does. Uh, and Cass catches him, I think, on, on numerous occasions, pilfering things from her office, from her yes. home. And, you know, he's just a delightful little thief. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> delightful little thief. Yes, there's nothing. Little thief. <laughs> yes, there's nothing. Um, I don't know. You feel like he does it because he needs to. There's something. Um, there's something not. Uh, there's nothing off-putting about him. I just enjoyed yeah. him. I, I yeah. thought. I thought if you were going to ever write a thief, he was really just. Um, and he's working on it. I mean, he's. he's, he's yes, he knows. <laughs> he knows that he shouldn't. He knows this is a, um, yeah. <laughs> but I. Lo- I really liked that. I also really loved. You, your sense of humor comes through Cass in, um, in her head and also in her dialogue and the way that she interacts with people. There's a scene where she's interacting with Aggie, the waitress. And I, I think I laughed out loud. I know I wrote down <laughs> giggling. I wrote giggling in the sideline. Um, so I really liked her interplay. And I just wondered, when did you start hearing the voice of Cass in your head? 
Mm-hmm. And I know she's changed through the series or evolved through the series, but when did you first start hearing her? Where did she come from? Well, quite honestly, I think I was maybe about 12 or 13 when I sort of heard her for the first wow. time. Um, when I started reading for myself, as I guess most kids do, we sort of gravitate towards the things that interest us. Uh, yes. Mine was always crime <laughs> for some weird reason. Um, Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie. Oh, puzzle Drew. solving. Those yes. are puzzles, um, yes. You know, so as I'm reading as a little kid and accumulating books and stacking them up, and they're all sort of in this genre for some weird reason that I still have not been able to explain to myself, um, <laughs> this voice sort of pops up as almost at the point where I sort of decide that maybe I could write something of my own. And I think I really sort of got serious about writing a book, maybe about the sophomore year of college. And this voice was there. And I just sort of sat down and played with it. I didn't know what I was doing. I don't think most writers do when they start. I had no idea about conflict or pacing or any of that stuff. I just had this voice and maybe a story I could probably tell and then it was 20 or so frustrating years of <laughs> was sort of teaching myself how to write, throwing things away, tearing pages up, starting again, querying, getting rejected, writing again, querying again, getting rejected. I mean, 20 years of that went by um, before yeah. I even got the, my first book sale. So um, it was all education. It was all teaching. It wasn't wasted time. It was just slow time, gradually sort of learning uh, the craft of writing seeing what I could do with this voice that was in my head and had been for several years and sort of trying to flesh her out and bring her to life and put her in a form where readers would grab onto her and just yeah. engage and identify with her. Yes. I love that she was with you that long. I think that's really fascinating that you can identify her that far back because she seems very fully formed to mm-hmm. me. One of the other things that I really liked about her was there are a couple moments in the book, specifically with teenagers, where she's uh, a child calls her a name. A, a teenager calls her a homewrecker in one scene, and a different teenager calls her a bitch. I think you know, but so she suffers some name calling, and yet she does not. Uh, she doesn't pop off. She does not. She doesn't get defensive. She has a real, specifically with the teenagers, and I thought you know, she engages with them with patience and understanding and a real, um, you know, that she wants to help them. So I wonder, did you have experience working with teens? Like, is that in your background, that, that level of, of calmness no. and patience that she has? <laughs> no. Um, in fact, I am the, probably the opposite of what Cass is. I have no patience at all. I'm not really a patient person, uh, especially with my own uh, writing uh, process and stuff. But, you know, this character is not me. Um, But I think in terms of her backstory, uh, that's something that she's got from her father figure. She has had sort of a sort of wonky childhood. Uh, Mother died when she was 12. Father sort of picked up and left. And her parish priest became her pseudo father. Um, And that patience, uh, that empathy, that compassion, I think, is a result of his influence. She is one of those kids uh, when she was 12 or 13, she could have been one of these kids on the street. I love that you, that you attributed that part of her character, not to something in yourself, but to something that had happened to the character, Right, right. that it comes from this father figure, her interaction with the church. That's mm-hmm. just, that's so fascinating. Her character attributes themselves are formed through her experiences, not because 
it's a voice you'd like, it's what you would like to say if you could say it. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So at one point in the book, you're describing her, her personal space. It's her office space, I think, and it's fairly sparse. But mm-hmm. you shout out to an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, you say that she has Annie Lee prints on the wall. Mm-hmm. Annie Lee. So mm-hmm. why, why that particular artist? Why did you shout that out? Why did you include that in the book? So she's uh, an artist that uh, African-Americans like myself here in the city of Chicago sort of look to as a chronicler of our history. Um, yes. So Cass is very much a Chicago woman, a, co- a product of the city. Um, Annie Lee is a, an artist from the city. And so I thought that was sort of a natural thing for her to have a print of Annie Lee on her wall. There's something that you put in your acknowledgments in, I think it was Borrowed Time, Mm-hmm. And you thank detectives. There's three different detectives that you name and thank. And two of them are females. Mm-hmm. And I just, I wondered how important was that for you, understanding the female perspective to this kind of work? Well, I sort of felt that I needed that perspective before I could write it credibly. Um, yeah. And I took two female detectives to breakfast. And we talked for over an hour each time about uh, the job they did, uh, why they chose the job they did, um, how they approached the job differently from their partners and the people that they worked with. I needed to know, how do you sort of go through this challenging job being a woman in the modern day world? I learned where they put their guns when they come home at night. Um, Where do they put them in their purse or do they? And I sort of gave Cass those tips, those uh, little character things. Um, one of the things that they, I got from them was her steely stare. That's a thing. There is a cop look, mm. and I cast that look. So she sort of looks through people, at people. She's thinking a million things in her head as she's looking at you. And that's one of the things that I came away with. So I, it was valuable. I thank them in the book. I thank them every single day as I sit down to write. I think it's really fascinating that you asked big picture questions, like what motivated you to do this work, but yeah. also really specifics of where do you keep your gun? And right. I mean, <laughs> that's a practical thing. <laughs> yes, right. And I think that you're, I think Cass has this, um, you know, you're in her head and you hear her piecing through uh, what she sees, how she observes things, her level mm-hmm. of observation you know, you're kind of, you're on that ride with her, which I really, I loved that. I loved mm-hmm. how she describes um, one of the most descriptive things in the book to me is not another character, but the cold, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, from the cover, you know, this is set in winter, uh, but from the very first page, then there's this really tactile almost feeling of cold in the way that you've described the Chicago winter and that lends itself to the urgency of this particular story too you know it it becomes something Cass she's not just noticing that it's cold outside she's noticing it and thinking about its impact on those that are outside Mm -hmm. she's looking for this um, runaway did you know when you had the the germ of of this story that the winter was going to be your setting for it that that was going to be an element I would like to say yes, but I am a (laughs) classic pantser, so I don't know anything until I actually start. Okay, wait. I want to make sure you caught that. Tracy said she's a pantser. This is writer lingo. Writers proudly identify as pantser or plotter. 
the pantsers don't use detailed outlines. They let their imagination or their characters lead them. And as storytellers, they like to fly by the seat of their pants. Um, I sort of start thinking about the next book uh, when I'm halfway through the one before it. So, uh, because I start to panic because I still, <laughs> I have no idea. I have no plan. I don't know what the next one's going to be and they're going to be looking for it. So I have to come up with something. So halfway through the book before, I sort of came across something about runaways in the city of Chicago. And, you know, that sort of put a German of an idea into my head. So, um, yeah. so by the time I got to Runner, when I sort of got down and that had that blank page staring in front of me and knowing that I had a year to sort of work this story out, uh, Runaways was my uh, issue. And then I had to sort of build a story around that. Well, I had done fall and I had done spring and I think I even did summer for the first three books and I got all those yes. seasons in, right? So winter was up. So winter was my season. <laughs> I'm going to do something about winter. And when you're writing about a Chicago winter, wind chill and the sub-zero temperatures, uh, the fact that snow is piled up to your knees, a life or death situation for people who have no place to go. So yes. we're talking about runaways. Um, she is out there somewhere in the middle of a Chicago winter, that becomes the ticking clock, makes yeah. readers sort of anxious uh, because nobody wants to see anyone unsheltered at a time like that, but especially a 15-year-old. You never let us forget it as a reader. You never let us forget it. It's winter. Every time that she is interacting with anything outside, part of her observation is the slipperiness or whether or not there's footprints in the snow. Um, you know, there's just, there's so many different ways you convey to the reader it is cold. It's cold and it dangerous. Really dangerously cold. You know, I thought that you, I thought you actually approached this, some of the truths about foster care and runaways with a lot of empathy and compassion, but with a lot of realism. You just mentioned, I think, something being plucked from the headlines. And so that yeah. was one of my questions was, where did this storyline come from? Because it feels, feels very current. Uh, mm -hmm. so I, I wondered how you came to write about it with such a sense of understanding and empathy. Mm -hmm. Well, once I had runaway and when I, once I had the winter, uh, then you sort of have to build a story around her case. Um, she is a PI, um, her job starts when the mother comes to her for help. So I sort of had to understand what happens to runaways when they run away. So I did a little research in terms of how many runaways are on the city of Chicago streets. Uh, there are quite a few in the hundreds of kids who are just out there without that safety net. I did a little research on the foster care system, how it's supposed to work, how it usually does, and then how some kids sort of fall between the cracks and we have to have some extra level of uh, intervention on their behalf. So a little research I don't do a lot of it because I don't kind of like doing that. Kind of thing. I, I, it seems too much like um, homework or whatever. I do enough to sort of understand what the issues are, uh, what the bureaucracies are, yes. how they are supposed to work, how some of it fails so that we have, of course, the usual stuff, action and conflict and stuff like that. So, um, and then sort of bring it down to the specific character of Ramona Titus. This is the kid uh, she's worried about. This is yeah. a kid she has to find, and she's sort of emblematic of all the kids out there. 
that's a good place to pause our conversation with Tracy and spend some time with Cass Rains in Chicago. This is from Chapter 1 of Runner, written by Tracy Clark, narrated by the talented Sherry Peel. I yanked the door open and all but flung my half-frozen self into the snug white castle, the hawk clawing up the back of my neck, my lungs shocked rigid by the sub-zero windchill. Chicago, brutal. Winter's threat. Keep it moving, sucker, or die where you stand. Winter, apparently, didn't own a calendar. It was just a couple days past Thanksgiving. I still had leftover turkey in my fridge. Winter had a sick sense of humor and was as welcome as an IRS audit. On your birthday. I stomped my feet to clear the slush off my ankle boots and then stood there a second inhaling warmth. The smell of fried onions and thin square meat sizzling on the wide griddle already starting the thawing process. It had just been a short dash from my car, but the tips of my fingers were already beginning to tingle, and my toes felt like ten frigid fish sticks right out of the freezer. Despite my having cranked up the car's heater to its highest setting, my fault totally. I'd miscalculated and dressed for cute when I left the house this morning. Jeans, short puffer jacket, a beanie puckishly placed atop my head, thin gloves, and the boots— Good-looking in an everyday, schlepping-around kind of way, but several critical inches shy of adequate. Seriously, I didn't know what I was thinking. I mean, I didn't just meet Chicago. I was born here, raised here, live here. I know full well winter does not play. I slipped the beanie off and scanned the tables, finding what I would have expected to find in a white castle at two o'clock on a Saturday morning. Club rats easing down from a stupid night out, street folk looking for a sheltered stop before they ventured out again, and those coming from or going to shift work for painfully low but honest pay. The castle was cheap, open 24-7, heated, and unless you came in and started tossing the place or harassing people, you were left alone. I was looking for Lisa Evans, a prospective client, She'd called my office the day before looking for help to find her missing 15-year-old daughter, Ramona, but she hadn't given me a lot of details over the phone. Truthfully, though, she had me at missing 15-year-old, so I was here to get the rest of it and see if I could do anything for her. My eyes landed on a lone woman sitting at a far table, burrowed deep in a light jacket, no hat, no boots, her eyes fixed in a faraway stare. She was dark, middle-aged, forties maybe. There was no one else waiting alone, so I assumed she was who I was here to see. I watched her for a moment, trying to get a feel for her. She looked sad, beaten down to the ground, and she wasn't eating. There was only a paper coffee cup on her table. She tugged at her jacket sleeves. One foot tapped busily under the table. The smell of the onions made my stomach growl. I'd spent most of the day tying up paperwork on closed cases, sending out invoices so I could get paid for the work. So it had been hours since I'd stopped to eat, and my body was just now complaining about it. 
but I bypassed the counter, ignoring the pull of greasy sustenance, and went over to the table with the sad woman sitting at it. Miss Evans. She startled, looked up, took me in warily. Then her eyes left mine, and she appeared to focus on something over my left shoulder. I flicked a look to see what had caught her attention, but there was nothing but an empty table behind me. I looked back. Evan's eyes dropped from mine. She'd seen nothing. Apparently, she just had a difficult time looking at me. You're the detective. Cassandra Rains. She said it in a clear voice, loud enough for the half-buzzed night owls nearest to us to clearly hear. I cocked an ear, then waited for what I knew was coming. I'd planned on counting to five, but it didn't take that long for the half-in-the-bag party revelers and seasoned working girls on a break to get up from the tables and slip out into the cold. Detectives, even private ones like me, got no love at all. And it said a lot when a person would rather risk frostbite and hypothermia than share space with one of us. If I were the type of gal who gave a twist, I'd have taken offense. I began to unzip my jacket, thought better of it halfway through the zip, and zipped it up again. I'd give it another minute, or twenty, to warm up some. I watched Evans sitting there, her leg bouncing nervously under the table, her not looking at me. She was thin, now that I saw her up close, and her eyes had dark circles under them. "'You're not hungry,' I said. Evans shook her head, the denial unconvincing. She took a sip from her cup. There was no steam coming off the top. She'd obviously been sitting with it a while. Well, I'm starving. I haven't eaten anything since breakfast. You mind me getting a little something? We can talk while I eat. She nodded an okay, and I walked up to the counter, ordered double, and waited for my sliders, fries, and onion rings, sneaking the occasional peek back at the table, but finding Lisa Evans unchanged each time. My order was up fast. Not much of a line at 2 o'clock a.m. I carried the bag back to the table, sat, and then dug in for the first slider. I offered Evans some, but she shook her head no. Oh, come on. I can't eat all these by myself. I mean, I could, but I'd regret it almost instantly. I offered up the bag. Help me out? Tentatively, like a shy kitten coaxed toward a bowl of buttermilk, Evans took a slider from the bag, bit into it. I spread the rest of the tiny boxes onto the table, positioning them between us. Easy access for whoever wanted more. Two a.m., I said, smiling. Unconventional. She finished the slider, eyed the line of boxes in front of her, but didn't go for one. It looked like I was going to have to coax her along, one slider at a time. I pushed a few boxes closer to her. She smiled slightly, then took another. I got a job, cleaning places at night. She cocked her head. The bus lets me out at the corner there. I glanced out at the corner of 79th and Stony. The stop on the west side of a cage match intense tangle of intersections, which at the height of the day had cars flying from all directions on mistimed traffic lights. The hub of confusion was loathed by locals, ignored by the city, and had earned a decades-old reputation for being a flat-out death trap.
If you were bent enough to try and cross the streets walking, you had better be quick about it. If you were driving and stuck at a light, you'd be wise to cross yourself and get right with Jesus before you pushed off on the green. I ate another slider, watching Evans as she avoided looking at me, wondering how old she was. I'd pegged her as being in her early forties, but closer to her now, she looked younger than that. Something had hit her hard somewhere, that was evident, and her shoulders drooped from the weight of it left behind. I snuck furtive glances at her hands and wrists, wondering what was hidden under the jacket. She didn't look high or drunk. She was lucid, though slightly morose. She tugged at her sleeves again, as though she was trying desperately to hide something. I thought, addict, recovering at least. I thought, alcohol too, maybe. It would account for her skittishness, the tugs. How can I help you, Miss Evans? She flicked a look at me. Lisa. I grabbed another mushy slider, but mostly so it would encourage her to do the same. Lisa. Like I said on the phone, it's my daughter. She ran away. I need somebody to get her back for me. I plucked an onion ring out of a box, then offered the rest to Evans. Her name's Ramona. Ramona Titus. Me and her father, well, we wasn't married or anything. She's 15. They say she's been gone since last Thursday. That's nine days she's been out there by herself. I sat up straighter. Who's they? Lisa looked embarrassed. She don't live with me. The state took her five years ago. She's been in the system since. She eyed me sheepishly. I got caught up in the drug life. That's why they took her. They moved her all over, but this time she was staying in a good place, I thought, with a woman named Dolores Poole. Ramona seemed to be doing okay there, but it must not have been so good if she ran away. I know that writers don't write for awards, but that kind of affirmation must feel really good, I can imagine. And I also think it shines a nice light on your work. It allows people to find you that maybe wouldn't otherwise see you. Um, you did win the Sue Grafton Memorial Award, and I was one of the millions of people who loved Kinsey Milhone. So yeah. um, I think for me, I was like, oh, she won the Sue Grafton Award. Yeah. That's what I I'm going to love this. I knew right away, I'm probably going to love this, you know? Um, so I just wondered for, so for you, what does that mean for you as a writer? Um, it just, it's kind of like a, an exhale um, after sort of trying for so long to sort of teach yourself how to write a complete story, a story that readers might want to read and come back to for the next one, um, to sort of wallow through the, the, the high reads of pacing and conflict and character development and dialogue, and then to sort of be up for this award and then to win it. I, uh, I don't know. I'm still not over it. I'm still not sort of <laughs> to a point where I can say, oh, that was, that was nice and move on. It was a big deal for me, especially when Sue Grafton was one of the first writers that I sort of wanted to write for or write like or write as good as. In fact, I think I was maybe 18 or 19 years old. 
when I took the bus downtown to the Crox and Brentano's on state here in, in Chicago to see her uh, at a book signing. Uh, oh. she, I think she was on A or B or something like that. Yes. It was early on. And I stood for about an hour or so to have my book signed and had my like half a second uh, with her. Uh, that was the only time that I, I met her. But I had that sort of in my mind that this was the pinnacle. This is wow. what I was shooting for. And then ten, turn around maybe 20 years or so later and get an award that was named for her. I'm, I was blown away. I was blown away two years ago. I'm blown away now. Um, and I probably will be blown away five or 10 years from now. Uh, it's just yeah. a big thing. It gives me a great deal of satisfaction and pleasure. And I'm honored to have gotten it. And um, it's just perfect. I mean, <laughs> if yes. I did nothing else for the rest <laughs> of my life, that would be it. That would be it. The box that I put my award in, it's right here on my writing desk. Uh, mm. I can look at it all day long as okay. I sort of suffer my way through the latest revision. Uh, it's in a little velvet pouch uh, in a box that is locked. And I look at it all day long. Not for show or anything like that, but just as sort of motivation. And to sort of know that I can get to that point if I work hard enough. So um, yeah. it's a great motivating factor for me and a great honor. I love that. I, you know, instantly I thought it would be an affirmative thing because writing is so solitary, you know, it's so, you don't have a team of people helping you until you get to the editing phase, right? Like all of that idea creation is you. So I felt like it would be affirmative, but I didn't think about it being motivating. It is motivating. Um, As you said, it is a solitary thing and you're not really sure that you've gotten it right until you've gotten it right. Um, But you sort of have to sort of pick your way through hope you're getting it right, hope you're putting in as much as you need to put in. And it helps to sort of have that motivating factor, that reward, that name, that example to sort of shoot for. You're not sort of emulating her work. Nobody can be Sue Grafton, but Sue Grafton. Um, But you're wanting to be as good as, uh, you want it to be as effective as, you want your readers to have as great an experience with your book as they did maybe with hers. And to give them something new, something exciting, something that's only you can give them and to make it good. Uh, I think every writer out there uh, wants to make it good. So I always like to ask authors, for you, if you had to tell someone this is an essential thing for me or these are my essential things, what would you say they were? Um, well, in terms of my writing process, the essential thing that I need for that, I think, is silence and just peace because the characters don't speak to you uh, in, when you're in a crowd. Um, it's when those quiet moments sort of arise when, whenever you write. My writing process starts at 5.30 in the morning. So at 5.30 in the morning till about eight, I speak to my characters and I need silence and quiet and um, no confusion during that yeah. time. That's what I need as a writer. Um, what I need personally as a person in living in the world, in the real world, is kindness and fraternity and uh, family and friends and things to bounce off of the world. I think writers look at the world and we get ideas from that. We see issues or things that don't work well or things that we want to sort of dive into. Uh, We need the world for that. So peace on the one hand, uh, the world and all its interactions on the other. And between those two things, we hopefully can say something that is substantive uh, and meaningful. You can connect with Tracy and find her whole series on her website. I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks to Kensington Books 
for connecting me with Tracy, and to Highbridge, a division of recorded books for the audiobook excerpt. And as always, thank you for listening.